Hello and welcome to the show. Hello, welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. How are you guys doing today? Hope you guys are having a brilliant Sunday. And as always, thank you for sharing the next hour with us. And today we have an amazing guest. His name is Kevin Borland, and he's the founder of Borland Genetics and has been writing tools to process DNA uh, data since 2013. He holds a physics degree for MIT and a law degrees from Rutgers University and the Vermont Law School. He's on the board of MitoYDNA and has appeared on episodes of Relative Race. Borland Genetics is a unique autosomal DNA database where users create public DNA profiles for their deceased ancestors using the tools and methods provided on the site. In this database, you will not only be matched against the DNA kits of living donors, but you will typically find among your DNA matches, user source reconstructed DNA kits for individuals who lived a long time ago. And I know you all have questions. And if you're following us on, following the episode on YouTube or Facebook, please, please leave your comments and ask your questions and we will be posting them on the show. And we'll, we will be asking Kevin to uh, to answer that. So without any more delay, welcome to the show, Kevin. We're just so pleased to have you. Hello, and thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited because, you know, y'all know I'm DNA. Um, what's the word I'm looking for, Brian? I'm DNA dumb. Let's just go there. <laughs> Oh, you're I not. Mean, no, I'm not. But I just so hate science. Like, I don't like science. And I think the reason why um, I'm so excited about this show is because Kevin's tools make science easy. So I like that. Because I can't stand science. <laughs> <laughs> I know, again, again, with, you know, genetic genealogy, with DNA, there's lots of terminology to use, and there's lingo to use, and there's abbreviations to use. So, it, it, you know, I appreciate it can be confusing. <laughs> yes. So let's now, jump do, right in. I do come from the science background, so I do love math and science, but, you know, I, I do understand, and I try to make, a, it, it is a, you know, a topic with a lot of science involved in it pretty much just because, I mean, genetics is a science, so it's, uh, but I try to make it easy to use as possible. And I've tried to put some fun things in my software that, you know, try to teach the, in, in addition to like providing services for the user, you know, and performing, you know, reconstructions of, of ancestor kits and stuff to try to explain as it's going along, how it works and why it works. And, you know, the idea is that, you know, you should be able to outsmart whatever artificial intelligence is in there <laughs> at some point and you could do it on yourself. It's to empower you to, to learn how to do this stuff too. I like that thinking. And my first question for you is, what, how did you make the journey from a legal background into genetic genealogy? Well, Where that? <laughs> you know, I, I was in I, all back to high school. I mean, I was in, you know, mock trial and stuff. So I, I love doing legal stuff. And also at the same time, you know, I was preparing to go to MIT for science and I had a, you know, high school teacher have us do a, a family tree. And that was the first time I've done it, did, you know, did something like that in high school. And uh, you know, the highlight of actually completing that project was, you know, spending a lot of time talking to my great grandfather out in Ohio about his family and about how it was uh, growing up. He was born in 1906. So, you know, in a totally different time and place than, than I'm accustomed to, you know, in rural uh, Ohio, you know, countryside, as opposed to, you know, me living mostly in, you know, New Jersey, you know, New York metro area, Philly Mm -hmm. and stuff. So I, I'd say the journey all began around the same time in high school. And I just kind of, you know, focused on different things at different points in my life. Um, and 
is there kind of a correlation between, because I, I see the, the legal system as being something that is very prescribed. There are very clear ways that you have to do things. Um, there are very clear ways that you have to process things. Did that kind of structure and that kind of framework, is there any parity between that and working with DNA? I think it's helpful, but you know what? Um, my, my main hobby outside of this is, uh, is music. And I found <laughs> that to be more helpful. You know, when you, especially about thinking about like, I, you know, I just came out with a new tool yesterday that, you know, and a, a new feature for Portland Genetics. And uh, it involves uh, clipping segments of DNA into, if you can assign only portion of it as paternal and maternal, using like snap points and trim points and stuff. And it's just what you'd use in like music production software and stuff when I write my music. So I I, I find, a, but at the same time, also the, the science uh, background, uh, you know, I have another tool that uh, decides if you have like two maternal segments uh, in your, you know, visual phasing chart or something, what, based on how far the gap is between them, what are the odds that there are like two recombinations in that point and that the, you know, that missing segment must also be the same as the surrounding ones. And that's, uh, the, the math I use to compute that is, you know, something I learned, it, it it's, has to do with the potential well in quantum physics I learned at MIT and it just happens to apply to DNA. So I'm getting stuff from a lot of places. <laughs> well, it's funny that you even made that comment uh, as far as your music being, you know, being into music because music is math. Yeah. So I, I like math and okay, so I'm going to say this, but y'all better not ask me to do nothing. I sing, but I only sing for myself and when my mother makes me. So, <laughs> you know, at family gatherings or whatever. Oh, don't you do it? Don't you know? Y'all know how that go. So um, I love math, but science is just not my thing. But okay. they do coincide. And it's so weird to me that I, I don't like it because of that. But yeah, you're right. It, it yeah. They definitely coincide with each other. But you might be more like me. My reluctance with science when I was young was because it didn't the way it was taught didn't match my teaching style at all. Asking me to read something from a book or watch a teacher scribble something on a board was the worst way for me to get like a, the science concepts. So that that was my reluctance to it. And actually working with DNA has kind of brought me back into science. I, I feel a lot more a lot more confident with that. No, I'm not like you. I just didn't like science. So. See, now that's how I was with history when I was growing up, like in, in, in like grade school and, and uh, high school. And, you know, it was, I felt like a lot of it until a certain, until later in high school, towards the end when there was some interesting stuff they taught us, you know. But uh, but I felt like I was just remembering dates that I'd never remember. And, and, and then, mm -hmm. you know, but now I love it. You know, I could sit and watch the History Channel all day, you know, if it presented that way. <laughs> So where did the idea of the concept of Borland genetics actually come from? Yeah. Okay, so I was an early tester of autosomal and uh, I tested me first, of course. And then I tested my mom because I, my biggest uh, brick wall, if you'd say, in, in my family tree is my, my mom's mom's mom. We, we don't know who she was. She died in Lithuania and her husband came to the United States with kids. Um, don't even know her name. And I, I don't know if, you know, my great-grandmother knew because uh, she died, you know, just shortly before I was born. So I never met her or anything like that. So I did my mom's and then I did my uh, brother's eventually too. And mostly looking for clues. This, my, my biggest hope was finding the hometown in Lithuania uh, where, where she would have been from. So um, then, uh, you know, they, it was brand new technology back then. And, of, you know, I got an inquisitive mind. So I decided to open up the raw DNA files. And I looked and I said, oh, this is, you know, this isn't computer code. This is some, it's DNA code, but it's something I could figure out. And I compared mine and my brother's and my mother's. And I came up with a, I used Excel and I came up with a kit for my dad. And I wrote some algorithms in, in Excel to do stuff like that. And, to, you know, to do matching and to do a whole bunch of stuff, you know, pretty much all the basic stuff at that time that was being done on the big websites. I had a thing that would, you know, make my computer smoke because it was in Excel and being done on a home computer. But uh, <laughs> so and then my cousin Richard is, is really the family historian in the family. Uh, you know, he's on he's my dad's mom's sister's son. And uh, he really was excited by the fact that I had been able to uh, reproduce, you know, his first cousin, my dad. And he's like, well, if he, let's 
I'm going to buy you a bunch more DNA kits for like everyone in the family on his side, you know? And he did. And he's like, okay, now reconstruct our great, great, great grandfather. So, you know, as, as things went on, you know, I realized Excel was not the way to do it because it would take me probably years to do it in Excel. And even just for the compute time, uh, you know, but plus the, the planning would be very difficult. You can't really visualize things very well in, in Excel. My brother, he programs in Python. He does, he does like financial stuff. Uh, so he recommended Python for me. And I wrote this uh, desktop. I watched a lot of YouTube videos on how to code in Python because the last time I had done <laughs> my computer programming, it was like my, my college thesis, which was in, which was in uh, Fortran, I think. <laughs> Way back. Wow. Not even close. But I, but I knew the general concept of pro programming from school. So. And then uh, it, it, I came up with a desktop toolkit. And that was about three years ago today. You know, I'm running a promotion on my site because it's our Halloween is our anniversary. That's why some of my, my uh, tools have funny names like the Creeper and things like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was still too slow for this project. And But we were able to do the, the reconstruction he wanted for like one of them in like, you know, couple months using that where it would have taken years before. Uh, so the next logical step was we wanted to have more people join the project. So we wanted to collaborate. So I started a website and that went live a year later. Uh, and so the, on the anniversary, on the one year anniversary of the desktop toolkit, we released in London, the, the, uh, the, the database and the, the current version of the software that's out there now, the, the, the website. And that has all the tools except for like maybe one that like nobody used in the uh, that, that was in the desktop, and it applies them to you know you can collaborate and you can do them online, and it and it's also a database for autosomal, just like any of the other ones that are out there. You know, you, we we could have as many DNA kits as we want on there, right? But right now we've got like ten thousand, I think roughly, uh, but we're looking to grow, especially as soon as this live uh, convention scene comes back. But that's how it started, you know, it was just, uh, well, if you could do this, well, why can't you do this, uh, you know, for my cousin? And then I just took me about a year, but I, I got to it. <laughs> well, more than a year. <laughs> and Jerome Spears uh, has asked a really good question. So what is the difference between the suite of tools available on Borland and the suite of tools that are available on Jetmatch? Okay. Um, and the main reconstruction tools that are on GEDmatch are like the phasing tool. I consider that a reconstruction tool because you're really, you know, you're reconstructing a half of your parent by subtracting it. You're doing what I did in my first experiment, basically, using that tool. You're, you're removing the, uh, the, the, the DNA of one parent from the children. Uh, and then they have the Lazarus tool there, which, is, which I call like segment phasing. So you can combine segments of matching segments that you match with other people in the database to create a reconstructed kit. And those are two awesome tools. I mean, they're, they're pioneering tools of, of DNA reconstruction, I would say. Uh, mine, I, I have like at, at least 20 tools probably on the site. And they're for, I have a system and that's really my main difference. Uh, I've come up with a system for systematically re reconstructing just about anybody based on any source of resource, re uh, of, of you know resources that you have. So, for example, for the phasing, you need a mother and a child. For the Lazarus, you you just you know you need some cousins and things like that. But I've came up with a system where first you phase as much as possible, and then you assign an ancestor, you know, like DNA painter style, you know, assigning ancestors, usually mother or father first, because I like to do one generation at a time to make sure I'm not making mistakes. It, it, you know, because if you see funky 10, recon 10 recombination points on a chromosome, because, you know, you know, you did something wrong, you know. So I do one generation at a time, I'll, I'll assign it to the ancestor in the next generation. And then I, you once it, since it's phased, you only have like one column of data, that means basically. So you can easily just extract that from the file and dump it into your new ancestor file. And then, you know, you do this by, you phase by comparing between two people. And they could be, you know, it could be the full genome. It could be a part of the genome, a block, like with a sibling, or it could be, small, you know, a segment just like the Lazarus tool does. And then what you can't do on, you can't do manually anyway on GEDmatch. I mean, the Lazarus tool does some sort of merger is you merge the, the, you, the building blocks that you've created using the various cousins of people of different relationship. And the, I, I call it the flagship tool on the site is the creeper. 
which is a virtual assistant. And I don't want to say the name because she'll wake up here, but with, you know, it's sort of similar to dyslexia where you would, uh, <laughs> where you, would tell, you know, it tells you what to do next. It tells you why you're doing it. It'll look and see, okay, well, you don't have, you know, your, neither your parents tested. It'll help you phase using a child and then identify, you know, I call it reverse phasing. You could use your child to phase yourself into your parents because, you know, once you did just involves the extra step, but those tools for the extra step on my, are on my site. You can, you know, you can make two separate files, but then they're going to have recombination points in them, but to paint them, to identify which of the grandparents they go to, all those tools are on my site. And they, we have automated visual phasing on there uh, where siblings can test and uh, you need outside references too. You know, they have to have some cousins on the site or whatever, but Mm -hmm. It can do, you know, it, you can, once it's done, you can go through chromosome by chromosome and see the different recombination points. And what's nice about this style of visual phasing, it doesn't just produce a chart. It does produce a pretty chart, but it also makes output kits that represent your grandparents. So you'll have, you know, four grandparent files when you're done with this visual phasing process that will, you know, will be in the database and they will yield matches just as if they had tested. Of course, it won't be 100% of their genome, but, you know. And see, that's what everything that he just said is why I love it. I've been on it and I, I've been doing a little stuff on it and everything, but it's literally DNA for dummies. I, 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 I mean, that's just the best, just like the, the, the little books. That's just what it is. It's literally DNA for dummies because all of the stuff that it teaches you how to do, it actually tells you, okay, do this now. Now do this. And you're like, oh, okay. And you can just click on, you know, you can just keep it clicking and keep it moving. And you're doing the work that before when you were looking at it, you're like, now what do I do? You know? So that's, so that's really good because a lot of similar sites don't give you that kind of support and they don't step you through the process that way. So you kind of have to know what you're doing before you do it. Right. And I have the tools is almost all the tools are free. There's a couple that are subscription just because they actually require a lot of compute time and I don't want to lose money if everybody's using them. But the, mm -hmm. the main subscription tool is that automatic automated assistant though, because you know, I got it's got to, the site's got to fund itself somehow. You know? <laughs> right. So my follow-up question to that is about endogamy. So Donnie and I are related at least eight or nine different ways. And we know that we're related more once we get out of the Carolinas. So how does the, how does your, how do your tools and your, your system kind of handle that? Okay. Well, in some, in some ways it can't, and in some ways it can, it depends on what the task is. Uh, I think the biggest way to ensure that endogamy isn't really getting in the way of everything is to be really careful and go back one generation at a time. So for example, if you're phasing yourself against your mother or your father, you know, it's not going to be into play because you know, at every, you know, at every allele, you know, who you got everything from because you've tested the other parent, right? So the idea, you know, every generation further back is not going to be that precise. You're not going to know for sure if there's endogamy involved, whether you got it from the ancestor you think you did. So you just got to be really careful. You got to look at things like probability. Like I said, if there's a gap and you're not sure, and it looks like, well, I've got this little seven centimorgan segment between two 50 centimorgan segments, that's the opposite grandparent. Could this be right? And the answer is probably 99% no. Not that it's not a real match, but that's not why you match that person. It's because you're related also in another way, you know? And, mm. and, th and, so it could be a little tricky. I mean, I'm part Jewish myself, and I'd say that's that's the hardest uh, area for me to do genetic genealogy. I mean, forget about clustering, right? Uh, you know, you've seen those clusters that are just like one giant square. Well, <laughs> that could be helpful well, if you don't know, uh, you know, for identifying a genetic genetic community, right? Because yeah. in a way, okay, yeah, you're not really matching a, the people that you match on there aren't necessarily because they're your close relatives. You know, it's, it's because they're, you know, their DNA is the tapestry of the founders of the population that, you know, you, that you descend from. So, but, you know, a match like that and you see a square and all of a sudden it's all people of the same ethnic community, it tells you something about yourself, right? It tells you, I mean, that's how Ancestry, I, mean, I, I don't know, that's not exactly how Ancestry does it, but they, hmm. they do genetic networks, which is similar. And it tells you that you're in the community of early settlers of Southeast Ohio or whatever, whatever it is, you know, um, or, you know. Hmm. 
But again, that's something that Donnie and I have to factor into when a DNA match pops up and they contact us. We're not really sure how we how why we match or who our common ancestors are. We immediately look at the CMs and we in the back of our mind, and I think it's subconscious for both of us, Donnie, and you can talk about this. We automatically assume that the DNA, the segments that are the CMs that are being shown are probably higher than normal for people who come from the part of South Carolina that our ancestors did because there was so much intermarriage. There was like crazy amounts of intermarriage. And that's actually what Loretta Bellamy just said. She was like, how much do I trust DNA matches I see from a purposeful inbreeding family? Like she's doing, she's doing work up on a family right now that it's so great that you guys will probably see her on the show to talk about it once she's finished with it. But um, we, yeah, we really, we deal with inbreeding so much and then knowing why we have so many people. I mean, is that a possibility? Does DNA become overabundant because of the fact that you had two cousins marrying each other and it's, it's over the top? Does that happen? Well, it kind I mean, of sounds yeah. like you're talking about pedigree collapse. Yeah, and I, I, it, it depends. It depends on what the situation is, too. I mean, I, I mentioned Jewish community before, and that's, that's a situation where uh, for probably thousands of years uh, or you know, for a long time, uh, marriage within the community is, is what created the endogamy, not marrying your close cousin or anything like that, but just only marrying people that are within that community and therefore... However many founders, even if there were 10,000 of them, you know, the, the, the most diversity you could have in the gene pool is the DNA of those 10,000 people. Even, even if you have never married anyone closer to than an eighth cousin for, for the last 500 years. And then like what you're talking about is recent times where there may not have been any endogamy up to a certain point. But then there was a bottleneck recently in the population where people settled in a certain area and had limited choice of, you know, selection of of uh you know so there they are different things and i think there are different analysis uh that you can use and i think i think it would be interesting you know because at some point to find out whether or not the original population was endogamous who knows i mean if you could reconstruct someone that's back 400 years will their matches look you know to other people from that time that are reconstructed look like you know the endogamy that we see the one big box or maybe not because the the population at that point may may not have been, you know, closely related. They may have been from very diverse parts of, of the world or from, you know, a different backgrounds. So, which but again, I, for Africa, systematic step by step, you know, and mm. trying not to make mistakes at any step. Which, for again, for African American researchers specifically, is a fact: whether your ancestors were enslaved or free, they were parts of very limited communities there were only so many you either got you either married someone from your community which chances are you were already related to them or you didn't get married um i mean i guess if you were a free person of color you could always move if you were enslaved you couldn't um and, you know that keeps popping up more and more and more as as more african americans do their dna sure and i would yeah. say there are different kinds kinds of endogamy too because I mean, you mentioned the difference between pedigree collapse and endogamy i would say there's even a little more structure into different types of endogamy. For example, like I'm also a part Lemko-Rusin, which is a minority ethnicity in the Carpathian Mountains on the border of Poland and Russia. And they've got an interesting thing going on because they were probably, you know, a, from Ukraine area or what's Ukraine now, uh, and, you know, migrated west at some point very early on before, you know, written history or anything like that. Uh, so there is some general endogamy in the population because it probably did have a limited number of founders that had Across the mountains, basically, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there were a different religion than the people on the other side, so they didn't really mingle with the, the Poles very much. Uh, and you know, they spoke a different language. They spoke an Eastern Slavic language as opposed to the Polish people or the Slavic people, uh, Sl uh, Slovakian people that spoke a uh, Western Polish language. They probably would have almost understood each other, you know, yeah. <laughs> almost. Yeah. But you know, and uh, and then you got the fact that they're in the mountains. So there's a second layer of endogamy is that even within the population, what you tend to match are people from your, your valley. So there's a, you know, you may not necessarily be matching a person because you're a close relative of them, but it may be for two reasons, you know, maybe because, yeah, you're just the same genetic 
community as the rest of them. Or, you know, if you if you, uh, you know, look at trends within any particular of those boxes that, you know, from a cluster chart, it turns out that they may represent a valley. And, you know, each of those uh, boxes may represent a different valley in the Carpathian Mountains that, you know, it's going to have a lot of gray specks on the outside connecting them because of the outer layer, outer shell of endogamy, if you want to call it from the original bottleneck. But Okay, well, that was my head that just went boom. But. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> but those kind of population trends are happening all the time, you know, and it, it's happening everywhere. Uh, probably at a more accelerated now, rate now because of transportation, you know, innovations in the past few hundred years or so. But I'm sure it's been that way forever, just about everywhere. People move around, they move slowly. They get bottlenecked in certain places, either due to geography or due to, you know, religious practices or due to, you know, inability to communicate with your neighbors or, or being surrounded by water or, or anything, you know. And uh, as people move around slowly, you know, we all may have been part of an endogamous community, you know, 50,000 years ago for all we know. And but <laughs> diversity keeps, keeps, you know, moving. increasing, you know, almost like entropy in physics, you know, as, as you go down. But then there'll be other other bottlenecks that'll happen and start the, you know, isolation, if you can, again, if you want to call it. Well, Melvin Collier, he actually said he used the Lazarus tool and dead match to create 74% of his mom's and dad. So he said he'll be able to do that to a great extent in here. Can you talk more about your tool that that does that? Yeah, it's uh, for creating a parent from living people, probably depending on what your resources are. But if you uh, as far as like who you've tested, but if 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 it's like my situation where you've tested like a couple siblings and a parent, uh, then you use a missing parent tool. And you, you just do, if you had three siblings, you just do three runs of it, you know, so you do one run for each sibling and find the missing, and then you'd merge the three at the end and maybe you'd get something like 74%. That would be that process. But I don't know if that's sort of how you did it with Lazarus. I don't know if you had siblings and a missing parent or if you used cousins uh, and because the, the tool, the corresponding sort of tool is called the Phoenix tool on, on my site. It's, it's not the same as the Lazarus because it only allows you to have, I, I don't know, one, what you'd call, a, I call it a child kit. I, in the Lazarus tool, they call it, I think, a group one kit. And, uh, you know, you're allowed to pick as many cousins that you match on the site and, you know, phase them against you and get the portion that you share. And then if you know they're all maternal cousins, for example, that's the Phoenix tool on my site. And, and you know, it'll merge them together for you. It's kind of a script more than a, one of the building block tools that I described before, like the extract or the phase tools. So it's... Wow. That answered this lady's question is this is usable if there are no parents or siblings to test and parentage is yes. questionable also. So you you actually just answered her question. I like to think of it as sort of like a, a dinner setting because, you know, the, the JetMatch has some tools and they're they're excellent tools. And if if you have the same if there are basic resources like that, like parents and, and children or siblings, you know, you're probably going to get the same results on JetMatch as you are on my site. They're very good tools. I, I <laughs> They're arguably my competitor, but they're also, you know, pioneers in the industry and, and we do different things, you know, uh, the, the, the area where mine are going to, you know, shine is going to be when, with those odd combination of rel relevance and sibling phasing and things like that that you can't do on GEDmatch and a dark side tool, I call it. And that was a Halloween sort of a reference to, it was a, originally called the Darth Vader tool but it's the uh it does the it sort of does what the missing parent does but at the segment level so it's the opposite of the lazarus tool instead of finding all of the uh shared dna dna you have with your matches that are on say your paternal side it'll it'll extract the opposite strand from you so it'll group so if you put a bunch of maternal relatives in there as your as your you'd call them group two in, in lazarus tool but as your uh, cousin gets in, in the dark side tool, it'll strip out the DNA that you don't match with them. So if they're all maternal, it'll strip out paternal DNA. So you could use a bunch of maternal relatives to create a kit for your father. And that's uh, one of the things it could do that, that you know, the Lazarus tool can't do. At least I, I'm not, a, I honestly haven't used it in about a year because I've been like super swamped. But at the time I last used it, you couldn't do that. So we should have actually taken a bet because I had a feeling that the small DNA segment question was going to pop up. And Jerome Spears has asked that question. 
Um, Kevin, please offer your comments on using less than seven CM segments or not, um, and in terms of rely relying on them, um, in terms of doing segmentation work. Okay. Well, I think there's a spectrum, right? From I mean, I, I would not condone using one cent centimorgan segments for doing anything, anything at all. I mean, even if you're looking at to see if it's the same ethnicity, you're going to be better off using other methods to find ethnicity or ethnic groups or anything like that. Now, as we roll on towards like five centimorgans, I wouldn't use that for anything except phase data, because what happens is at, at five centimorgans, you've got such a high chance, not that that segment's going to be distant or meaningless, but that, but that it's not a segment. Because what can happen is what you're doing in a regular algorithm and a matching algorithm, right, is you're comparing your two strands of DNA against the other twos. So what you're hoping happens, and this is what you have a real match, is that the match itself, the matching, what's registering is a matching portion of, of DNA is say all on, on your paternal strand versus all of your matches, either maternal or paternal strand. But what happens when you got like a three centimorgan strand or, or match or, or, you know, what happens is what's really going on is it's crisscrossing. And like for a little while, what's more likely to happen rather is, you know, with that small of a distance is crisscrossing. So you may match someone else for a half a cent. You, you may match with, they've got four streams, right? So this stream may match this stream, the other person for a little bit, for a half a centimorgan. And then this stream will match this stream. And then this stream might match this stream. And this stream might be matching this stream. You know, as you continue up, it just, whatever, it's coincidental. And that's, what, you know, and that's going to happen with unfazed data pretty much up to like seven centimorgans. With phased data, I would say, you could, if the algorithm is good, down to like five centimorgans. Anything below that, I would say, is is not helpful. Um, and I know there's some issue with. Uh, I, I think, you know, both Family Tree Maker and Ancestry have dropped their low segment matches. Honestly, I think with the Family Tree Maker, uh, I'm sorry, Family Tree Family Tree DNA, they they cut out like one centimeter X matching and stuff like that. And I I think that is actually probably a service to their users who were falsely relying on it and thinking that, you know, they match people maternally when they were actually paternal matches and things like that. I think it was throwing a lot of people off. As far as the, you know, six to eight centimeter, centimorgan drop from Ancestry, I kind of feel the opposite about. I, 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 I'm not privy to why that decision was made, but I, I, I'm pretty sure it's, you know, financial. It costs money to, you know, uh, store all this information and stuff. But I, it, if in their white paper, they claimed they were using some sort of sort of phasing. I suspect it's like micro phasing, like basically giving weight to them. And I, I don't quote me on this. I don't want to. It's okay. Ancestry. It's okay. I did it. But this is how I would do it if I was Ancestry and if I had access to 20 million DNA kits. I would, what I would do is I would match someone and I see if they match, they had a, what looks like a matching segment at seven centimorgans, but you can't really tell, or six centimorgans. But you can't really tell because, you know, the, the tests, the testing companies, the, the actual labs don't produce phase data. They, they give you a jumble of the two copies of your chromosomes in your file. So if I were Ancestry, what I would do is I would say, okay, well, I, this is picking up a lot of matches. I would take the largest match across that, you know, alleged segment, the best match, and I would check out, you know, what I called the dark side before. Does that match real people? Is that a real, you know, is that a possibility for what the opposite copy of your you and your matches chromosome, you know, look like? Would it match real people, or is it just totally made up? And if 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 it is pulling matches from the pool, then I would weight that segment. You know, it's sort it's phasing it against the cousins that you are alleged alleged cousins and giving it a better rating as far as whether they really are your. And that's what I would do if I was Ancestry. That's what I think they probably were doing when they mentioned phasing in their in their uh, you know, white paper in terms of matching. I don't know for sure, don't quote me on it, but if that's the way they did it, then I would have kept, you know, I wouldn't find any problem with using those six to eight centimorgan segments. I wouldn't recommend using anything below that. Mm, no, mm -hmm. um, so I don't expect you, I, I, I don't, ex oh, go ahead. I have a, a quick question mm -hmm. and, and this is in JetMatch. Um, so, Gemmatch has this tool, and I haven't seen this tool on yours yet, but they have this tool where you can compare where two people match one kit, more two or more kits. It's there, and it, it pops up on a button if you have any of those matches. So, for okay. example, it is a small database right now. It's only like 10,000 kits, so 
but we're hoping to grow it through events like this and stuff, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, if no, it, when you click on the match itself, so from the match, um, there is a button that says shared matches, and the cutoff on my side is 15 centimorgans. So, so then now with now with Jet Match, you can actually drop it if you wanted to. I don't for that one, but you can drop it to like three. What if someone actually did drop their their segments to like three centimorgans or five centimorgans? What what then? Because one of the things that we have the issue with in Edgefield or in the 96th district is that because we my, like my mom is considered an Eve because she matches so many people right, on right, okay. so many areas. And then there's another guy in our family who's considered an Adam because he matches everyone. So sometimes if we were to drop our CMs down to like three or five, five three or five CMs, it would then pull in the matches that they don't show up when it's shared, but shows up if we drop it there. How, you know, what, how do you feel about that? Well, I don't know. I haven't, I, I haven't actually played with that really that in that manner it, it rather. So I, I, I chose the, the, the cutoff of 15 centimorgans. I thought Ancestries was a little too conservative at 20. And I know Jedmatch you could put, I don't know what the limit is, but you could lower it a lot further. You can The limit is 10, but you can lower it. And what I find at real the lowest setting or lower settings on Jedmatch is that I'm more likely to share a match with that, with my, okay, we'll call my primary match, right? And we'll call the other ones my secondary matches, the shared matches, right? Mm-hmm. I'm more likely to sh- to match those shared matches, those secondary matches that in common with the primary match be, through completely different ancestor. Doesn't mean it's not from the same community. It's going to be more likely if they're within the same community, right? Because mm-hmm. there's going to be more coincidences within that community. So, for example, you know, if it's on my Quaker side of the family that's, that was in the same part of Ohio for a long time, I'm going to have some false shared matches that aren't from the same parent, they're not from the same ancestor, but it's going to be that they match both of us because they matched different people in that same community of related people, you know, so you're not necessarily getting what you think you are if you lower the match too low. It's not necessarily because you have the same shared ancestor. It may just be because your shared ancestors may have been neighbors, you know, and their descendants had kids. That's mm-hmm. that's amazing. I I want to pre- I very much appreciate you making me feel very smart right now. <laughs> it doesn't make that data less valuable though. You just got to know what the data means, right? I mean, it's not data that's it's nice that Jedmatch offers that, right? Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> so we've had other questions, Brian. You want to excuse me? Another one? I had to clear my throat there for a minute. So sorry, sorry about that. Um, so kind of going back to the the, the smaller CMs. Uh-huh. So I'm basically, well, I'm 58% European. Um, and again, using South Carolina as a specific place, but also in Virginia, North Carolina, I was matching a lot of Europe, majority, if not exclusively, European descended people. And I was matching the same people that Donnie was matching and that a lot of people from that part of South Carolina were. But you know, and even though we might get the occasional seven or eight centimorgans, a lot of it was between, say, 6.3 to 7.2 within that range. And again, reminding people, these were people who were either exclusively or majority European. Um, the chance that that was, a, and we were being told, well, that's just a false match. Now, the likelihood that an African-American is going to falsely match someone who's majority European in a DNA matching site is either highly improbable or that service really needs to look at how it's doing its matching algorithms. It's got to, it's got to be one. It's the latter one or the other. Because I would think, you know, it could go either way. And I think it's going to depend on which website you're on, to be honest. I mean, if they're using some sort of like the type of phasing thing, like I described, then I think you could probably rely on that a lot more. If the, if they're weighted or thrown out, you know, ancestry is, you know, famous for its timber algorithm algorithm. People don't like that. It throws out stuff because sometimes it throws out good stuff, but you know, most of the time it throws out, you know, it's false information, but not all the time, you know, and it's, it's a trade-off. 
and it's also, I'm sure, a business decision trade-off too, because I mean, the more matches you have, the more money they're probably, you know, hemorrhaging on people scraping their matches from their website, from like third-party tools and things like that. That, you know, but you know, there are ways around that too. You could always negotiate with those people and like give them the data to use in their tools or, or license their software and stuff, like my heritage did, right? But Mm. That's <laughs> different, different, different topic for a different day, perhaps. But uh, as far as the segments themselves, I mean, it's hard to tell in some ways because of the the lack of transparency in the in the matching process. And, and it's you know, it's expensive, you know, to share your trade secret and then have somebody copy it is is probably you know why they do that. You know, they don't want people doing mm. it. You know, my site, you know, uses phasing when it can. It, it has it doesn't allow you to set the threshold on the actual matching. However, it uses a different, it automatically uses a different threshold when comparing phase versus non-phase data. Um, I don't know if the other testing companies and stuff are doing stuff like that because they're not, you know, it's hard to tell. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to answer that question without knowing exactly what's going on under mm -hmm. the hood. Because really, I mean, basically what we're all, what, the, what the three of us are saying is just like a paper trail, just because some a, a document has the name of an app, the same name as someone that you're trying to research does not mean that that document pertains to the ancestor that you're researching. Right. So too with DNA. And you know, like anything else, you have to do your due diligence. And you know, as people's understanding of DNA gets better, hopefully they can do that better. That's a great analogy. And it's also one of the biggest plugs that I would have for a chromosome browser is because it allows you to look at trends on the specific segment that where the match is allegedly, you know, right? So. Hmm. It also, you know, that's one way to give a match more credence is to look at what's on the other side of the match and see if that matches other people in the pool. Another way is to look at trends on a match. Are they all on your mother's side? You know, all they are all on your grandmother's side. If they're all from the same side, that certainly, uh, you know, lends some credence to the fact that, that that's who you inherited that from and that it's probably not a coincidence on the majority of the people that are on there that you match on that side. Maybe for a couple of them, but if you got enough, if it's like, you know, 10% of the matches are uh, from this valley in the Carpathians and 90% are from the other valley. Yeah, you know, those 10% may be, you know, false matches from an earlier time and endogamy, but you're looking pretty good for that segment coming from whatever answer you had that came from that valley, right? So you got to look at trends and a chromosome browser really helps you do that. Yeah. So I have a question from Becky Purdue. She says, will companies eventually ID each DNA strand as mom or dad? Or do you do you see something like that happening? I know you that's, can't speak for us. That's a great question. And, and you know, that's like the first goal on my site, not for me to do it, but to have the user try to do that using all the resources available. But the issue, I think, is, isn't so much at the, the, the stage of the tools or at where the testing companies are doing. It's it, it, I think the technology that's prohibiting that is at the lab, you know, and you could, there are some short, you know, I don't know what you call it, phasing over short, not even segments, but there are some tools out there that, that universities have that try to phase it just from the, the, the measurements from the lab. But what's really going to happen, and I, I hope that it happens in the future, is that the way that the DNA is actually measured you know, at the point of measurement, you could measure, you know, the paternal side separately from the maternal. And you, it, that technology doesn't exist right now. I hope it does someday. You know, it would eliminate a lot and the need for a lot of these tools, you know. But. Wow. Okay. Uh, we've got two great questions that just popped up. One from Melvin Collier. X chromosome matching is deemed problematic. Does your program incorporate X chromosome matching? It does. And uh, I agree that it's, it's it, the problem with it, I think, is there's twofold. One, they could sample a little better, and, and I don't know why they don't. Maybe there's just not enough diversity on the X chromosome. I don't know the science end of why they don't sample enough points on it, uh, to be honest. But they don't. So that leads to less, not enough data points. So you're relying on less data when you're determining a match. You know, so the solution to that is to raise the threshold so that you only look at you know, a certain amount of density of data points when you're making the comparison, which is what my software does. I'm not sure of any other way around it, given the data going in, right? And uh, and that's admittedly gonna 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 eliminate some some positive some legitimately positive matches, but uh, you can't tell if they are or they aren't because the, the the amount of data that they sample is really restrictive. But as far as the other the, the second fold of it is the the inheritance pattern, and I think uh, there's just a lot of confusion in how the X is inherited. A lot of people just consider it maternal, and they're thinking of you know from the old times when they had the mito mitochondrial DNA, right? 
that just goes on their direct mother's 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 line. I hear a lot of people mixing up mother's side with mother's line in their terminology, and mm. which is the difference between a maternal match and a direct maternal match that's only right. up that diagonal, that straight up diagonal, right? right? So the easiest way to remember, I see they have these charts and stuff, and if you know if you like visuals, that's great. You know the ones with the shaded different possible relationships that could be with the X. But the easiest way to just evaluate uh, whether it's possible is just to remember that the X can never go from father to son. You know, it could pass in any other way. So it doesn't, you know, the X is not maternal because for a, for a, for a daughter, she could has one from her dad too, which is paternal. That's very helpful information because it doesn't recombine. It's, you could, it's not compatible with the Y is I guess the way to look at it. So what happens, a recombination is when you switch grandparents on a, on a, because, you know, you'll have your maternal copy of a chromosome. And what happens is it breaks during meiosis. And, you know, your mom may have been passing you her mother's DNA, but then when it recombines or reattaches, it attaches to her opposite strand. So then she'll start passing you from that point on her father's DNA. That can't happen on the, on the Y chromosome because, you know, you never have two Ys in, in ordinary circumstances. And it doesn't happen when you have an XY either, which is, you know, a, a, the, the male, whatever you call it, the configuration. So because they're not, they don't have, they're not compatible. When the X breaks, it can't recombine with another section of the Y. So you're only, it's going to stay that same, it can in a few little areas near the tips called the pseudo-autosomal region, but it doesn't affect matching. It's, uh, you know, it's, which is good because that means that like two half sisters or half brothers or, or, or well, you know, half children are, are going to two half sisters that share an entire X. It may be because it's that they have the same father and that father's X didn't recombine, you know, in the next generation because it couldn't have nothing to recombine with. If right. it recombined, it, it just kept on combining with itself and passed the whole thing intact. So X is very helpful information. You just got to know that it can never go from father to son. It can go any other way. So you, the X didn't come from necessarily your mother's mother's mother. It could have come from your mother's father's mother's mother's father's mother. But it couldn't come from your mother's mother's father's father. Stop there because you heard the word father two times. That's, that's the way to remember. Well, the other question was from um, Lewis Kessler. And he said, Kevin, how do you how do your phasing results compare to the results from visual phasing techniques at JetMatch? Hi, Lewis. Uh, uh, I, I know Lewis. So. Okay. <laughs> I, I, and the answer is, uh, I, I've only actually done, you know, a, a visual phasing project using GEDmatch data like once, and, and it got basically the same results. And I was very thorough using both, you know, so it's, it's not like one contradicted the other. Uh, there are going to be issues because Okay, with visual phasing, there's the, the two parts on my system. One is the actual making the pretty chart, and that's going to come out basically the same, I think. Uh, it's going to just depend on how much data you have available to you. Um, I could do a little more about that. For those who are really, really visual phasing nerds, I'm using different logic rules, I call them. And one is the, the logic rules of visual phasing are horizontal parity, using what's on the car, you know next, next segments over to make predictions about what's between them, vertical parity, using uh, what's on the opposite chromosome of your siblings, you know, on the same area to make determinations and call sides and things like that. And you use, uh, you know, the, what would you call it? Uh, expansion, segment expansion. So that if you match a sibling along a certain region and you have a paternal match along that, and it's only an H-hot, is you only half match your sibling. So it's either on the paternal or mother's side, you could extend that inference that it's paternal across that entire block. So those are the rules of visual phasing. I mean, from a computer analysis standpoint, and I've got two out of the three programmed in. And usually, you don't have to do the other three. It's going to make very, very little difference if you've gotten every single one of the possibilities of applying the other two, which is what the automated tool does for you. And someday, I'll I'll add that third one. In which case, it will be I won't call, don't want to call it perfect, but it will exactly emulate the process of manual visual phasing that we have now. But there's a there's an issue with the output kits that's different than the chart because of uh, I call it entanglement because I'm from physics, but it has nothing to do with like quantum entanglement. What happens is uh, you can't use data from the shared uh, even on HIR, even only on a half matching, 
you can't use the in-phase data on siblings. And it's not because of the, that the data won't represent what you think it is. It's because of what exactly gets sampled and what's on the opposite chromosome on those uh, siblings every time that it's going to match people on the wrong side of the family. So it, it has to be excluded from. So there's a, the what you see on the chart as being reconstructed visually is always going to be more than what you can get out in the actual phased ancestor file to draw matches from the from the match pool. Mm -hmm. so, it's kind of a really complicated answer, but I know Lewis, and I know he knows exactly what I <laughs> So I've been struggling for 15 minutes trying to think of how I wanted to phrase this very simple audience member um, question. Because really, I mean, your service is for everyone, regardless of ethnicity or kind of, you know, cultural populations. Can but, I interrupt you real quick, Brian? Because yeah, first, go ahead. I just want to say you and I both were trying to figure out how to phrase this one person's question. Uh -oh. And I was looking at it and looking at it. So go ahead. I'm glad and it's, you and got it. it. And it's nothing that's wrong with the question. It's such a simple question, it's but it, it does, it requires some some backstory. Yeah. Um, so f again, for a lot of African-Americans specifically, we have, you know, the paper trail will run out for enslaved ancestors, not run out, but you, they become more difficult to get. You have to figure out where they are. Hopefully they survived fire and all the rest of it. But at some point, our, our paper trail becomes more difficult. So we have to rely extraordinarily amounts of on, on DNA. Mm -hmm. Is there part, is there a tool or some tools on, on um, Borland's that you think would be really beneficial for, for African-Americans, specifically those with enslaved ancestors? Well, that's interesting because I mean, I guess in, in sort of a way, you know, DNA is a little bit of a co common ground, right? As opposed to, as opposed to how it's much more difficult in, in the written records, right? Depending on, you know, your background. Whereas for DNA, I mean, it's only going to go back a certain distance for, for everybody pretty much. Um, and I don't even know if reconstruction would go back further than, you know, that time period that we're talking. Well, I, it, you know, it's a lot closer than, than we tend to think sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, you may be able to reconstruct ancestors that you won't be able to put a name to. I mean, I think that's a potential outcome. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, but it is more. uh you know, the way I, I like to think of it, and I guess maybe the way I'm where I'm headed in the future with my website, right, is, you know, it starts out is, you know, just a tool to, you know, you could think of, you know, a reconstructed kid is just a, what do, you, what do you call it, a filter. So to filter out all matches on, you know, that side of a family. And you got, if you got, you know, merging them, then it, you're also combining, you know, the matches that you have among siblings or relatives, right? So it would be all of the matches on the side of the, but it's still just a glorified filter, right? But it, there's also, I think, something a little more to it than that, in that, you know, there is something inherent in, like, the DNA actual code itself. I mean, these things are your, you know, program your body, right? I mean, they in, in a lot, and your experiences make you who you are, but so does your DNA, you know, in, in different ways. So, I mean, I, I see an analogy, too, in, like, having a picture of your ancestor to having a, you know, part of their DNA code, you know, you know in a computer or, or a file. Uh, it's it's something that your that ancestor had, you know, that they carried. You may not know their name, you may not know the name of the person that you have a picture of. That's your, you know, that you inherited from your great grandfather or something that they kept. But you know, it's somebody in your family. And it's I see it's I see the site getting more in the direction of I don't want it to be just like a bunch of numbers. What I'd like to have and what it's starting to have is with the profiles of the people you're reconstructing and things like that. And even with the segments, and, well, I'll get to the segments, and, but the, with the profiles, I want it to be more like finder grade. I don't want it to be just a name and like, you know, a star next to it for an alias like Jetmatch has or uh, on Ancestry, you know, just a little symbol that says no tree. I want it to be, I want people to put up profiles. I want people to put stories up about the ancestors and and make it much more like a finder grave looking layout for, for the profile. And I'm working in that direction. I've, I've added family tree events to the site and things like that too recently in the, in the previous uh, uh, update that I did to the site. And the same with the segments. Uh, you know, right now, a chromosome browser is great. Yeah, but what you look at it and see is, you know, you can see the name of an ancestor or you, in, if you've used DNA Painter, right? Because that's my favorite tool for, for DNA painting, you know, uh, or for mapping your chromosomes. 
And but at right now, what you see is you know the name of your ancestor and the names of the matches the matches that ancestor, and it's very utilitarian information, right? It's it, it enables you to do things and learn things about your your matches, predict things about matches that you don't know that are on the same segments, for example, right? But what it's not, what I think it should be, is like walking down the aisles of a supermarket because that's what your DNA is, right? It's like two sides. Mm. And you should be able to, I want it to be almost like playing, what's that, a Kessel Wolfenstein game or like the game where you like a first person shooter kind of game where you're walking down the aisles of a supermarket and you're on this strand of the DNA and you see like a, a you know, a, a museum. You see like all, uh, if it's an ethnicity or, a you know, you see the ethnicity of it. You see cultural exhibits from where from where you inherited that DNA from. You see pictures of the other people who inherited that same segment. You see like a map of how that segment has gone across through time to different places. You know, I, I, I and you know, I think that's meaningful. I, I think that's uh, something additional. You know, it may be a little fluffy in terms of you know, it's not what you know the really hardcore uh, genius non-genetic genealogists like where they have to prove every single record, you know, whatever, but it's a storytelling thing. And I think it's ancestor communities, to be honest, are getting in that direction too, because at least they try to explain the migration route, perhaps, you know, if they've, if they found it, but I'd like it to be like a little Disney world of, of, this, of a supermarket where you just scroll down the aisles and you see where all your DNA came from and all the other people who had it and, you know, what they have, may have went through because of the time period it may have been and the, so even if you don't know who it is or whatever, if you've extracted this stuff and you've, you know, you're able to use all the data that's available and maybe put something like this together, I think that has some sort of intrinsic value too. Yeah. Well, you actually answered Jerome Spears' question, which was forecast what will be able, what we will be able to do in five or 10 years in your view, using your other sites and, um, you know, DNA as far as that's concerned. But then um, Melvin, he came in and said, you hit the nail on the head, putting DNA with ancestors we can't currently identify by name due to the aspects of American slavery. This is something we are all tackling. So, I mean, we're coming, rolling down to the end and there's so many more comments that are now popping up that we can't even get to. So I want you to just like really... Um, talk about just very quickly i wanted you to talk about the mito dna as well just like real quick okay <laughs> so two things going on right now i'm also i have two you know affiliations i'm affiliated with borderline genetics the company that, that i founded and i'm also affiliated with mito wide dna which is a nonprofit org and they are like a database for uh matching across platforms for mitochondrial and for y dna and they're having a buckathon right now. So if you go to their Facebook group, it would be great. They're, you know, supported solely by the community. And they uh, they have an independent database for mitochondrial and Y-DNA. And they're working on, you know, state-of-the-art tools to be able to uh, use that data. And for my site right now, and I have a promotion going on right now where I'm not selling you anything. The site is com complete. All the subscription tools on the site for Halloween are free to the public today. And they are every Halloween because that's, you know, Born on Genetics' anniversary. So... There's still a few hours left. It's going off, uh, going back. It goes back to regular business as usual at midnight, you know. But if you want to, if you want to play around with it, today's the day to do it, you know. Definitely, because, definitely. You know, it, it, your carriage will turn into a pumpkin tomorrow. But today, everything's free. <laughs> That's awesome. And just to let you guys know, there is a Borland Genetics user group on Facebook. So once you join them. Make sure you join this genetics, this user group as well. And Kevin is there and he answers questions. I love him. And then the other thing is for our Edgefield DNA people, he is going to help us with the Moses Williams project, which is under the Sheila Hightower, um, Hightower Allen Foundation He's going to help us try to figure out how all of the 96th district is related. <laughs> Oh boy. So this is going to be so cool. <laughs> Just stay tuned. We're definitely going to work towards that. Yeah. So Brian, do you have any last minute things you want to say? No, because unfortunately we are rapidly running out of time. I don't even have time to introduce next week's show. Just to thank Kevin for your generosity in, in being here and sharing your knowledge. Um, thank the audience for, for joining us. Thank you so yeah. much for having me. And thank you to the audience too. 
Yes, this was awesome. This was awesome. So, okay, guys, we will see you again next week. Thank you so much for tuning in. You guys are great. Don't forget, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter, and, of course, E360 TV. Absolutely. You guys again, thank you so much. See you next Sunday. Bye.